welcome to the Real Issue Podcast. Thank you. I am your host, Rob Lundberg, and we are living in some really interesting times today. Uh, many of you who have been uh, following uh, the uh, status and updates on Ravi G, uh, that Ravi G is a term of respect for Many of, our, uh, many of us who consider him a mentor, either short distance, personal distance, or even uh, through his books, his media, of uh, podcasts, MP3s, whatever. Um, as of uh, yesterday, Michael Ramston had an update saying that uh, Raviji is uh, close to uh, the time where the Lord is getting ready to call him home. As of right now, uh, we are seeing fake news on the web, uh, and we've also been instrumental in putting a quell to that. What I want to talk to you about today, I'm pretty sure, is near to dear, near and dear to the fact of many of the older apologists' heart, and they're seeing some of our some of the one dollar apologists like myself really struggling with the fact of trying to get apologetics into the church. What is it that is causing this? Well, what if I told you that it is the ghosts of the past? What do I mean by that? You know, people today would say that, you know, the condition of the church is, you know, everything's all good. But is it? Have we lost our way? The thing I want to share with you today is how we got to where we are today. I mentioned this uh, a week or so ago. I might have mentioned it even last week when I, when I was sharing uh, how Ravi was uh, instrumental uh, in shaping our, our, our walk and apologetics and everything. But how did we get to where we are today? I mean, that is the question. You know, the meaning behind anything is found in its origin. And you know, the, the church in America basically has abandoned the evangelical mind. And I'm talking about, when I talk about the church, I'm not talking about uh, those in the church that know about loving God with heart, soul, and mind. I'm talking about those who basically don't believe in engaging the ideas of why Christianity is true. And I'm going to get into, I'm going to get into this. Now, I don't know whether you realize it or not, but the problem with America today is really not America. And you might not like what I'm going to say in this next sentence, but the problem with America is not America. The problem with America is the church. Now, I understand it that these words sound rather brutal. Uh, some people might think uh, that I'm being harsh, but I don't think so. And the reason is, is because I think we can see that there's an overwhelming cloud of anti-intellectualism in the church today that is really hurting the church as far as filling out, fulfilling its part in the Great Commission and living out the Great Commandment. Now, the Great Commission, as you know, is Matthew 28, 18 to 20, go out and make disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, uh, I am with you always, and I will be with you, uh, you know, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. 
And then the great commandment is about loving God with our heart and our soul and our mind and loving our neighbor as ourself. Folks, that is what really, if you really talk about living the apologetic life, that's what it's really all about. And I don't want to digress here, but the problem, this problem today is widespread in the church today. You know, how did we get to where we are today? How did we get to what we're seeing today where the mind is being dismissed from our walks and even in our worship? You know, there are churches today that are just building upon creating an anti-intellectualism in the church through experiential worship. And if folks' experiences are great, um, uh, emotions, we are we are created in the image and likeness of God, and God has given us emotions, but God has also given us a mind. And of course, that is part of our soulishness as well. So what I'd like to do today is just to basically give you a snippet of how we got to here using a timeline of history that takes us back, and I'm going to deal with it from the perspective of two angles. One is the rise of anti-intellectualism, and two, the, the fact that there has been um, a withdrawal of the evangelical mind, and then I'm going to wrap it up with what it really looks like today. What we'll do is we'll get up to the withdrawal of the evangelical mind, we'll come back after a break, and then I'll get into um, the fact of some of the deeper uh, aspects of this. But folks, it goes, you know, you can go back to the pilgrims and the Puritans and to see the beginning of this development, you know, you go back to that. And these were folks who believed in having an intellectual life. They were highly educated. They had a literacy, literacy rating well above the mid 90 percentile. And during this time, Many colleges, many of our colleges and universities of the early years, think places like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, um, Brown, folks, all of those, sem all those um, colleges and universities actually started off as seminaries. But see, when and you'll see this develop in, in this whole thing, when we get further into history, we gave up ground. We gave up ground, and we cannot. We got to take ground back. See, folks, they taught their kids how to read and write at a very early age, and that's one of the reasons why I, I applaud the homeschool movement. And the study, they studied major disciplines like the arts, the sciences. They even studied philosophy, and many other disciplines that pointed toward loving God with a heart and their mind. Many scholars of this period, as I mentioned, uh, ones of the likes, say like of Jonathan Edwards, were activists who sought to be scholarly and, scholarly and well-informed in a variety of disciplines. And in a community back then, it's not like it was, not, not like it is today. The community back then, the minister was seen as the resident intellectual. The, 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 the minister was seen as a person who had not just spiritual authority, but he had uh, a knowledge of intellectual, of the intellectual disciplines. He was well respected back then. But see, as we can see from this period, it was well, also well known um, and for being, uh, it was well known for pursuing the intellectual disciplines, unlike today. One Puritan pastor once proclaimed that ignorance is the mother not of devotion, 
but of heresy. And folks, I can tell you right now that with us being ignorant in the church, we see the prosperity gospel. We see the new apostolic reformation. We see, uh, we see ignorance and in, in a lot of the contemporary praise music today that is being pumped out by the radio station and into our churches. But then you get to the, the next phase here. We get to this middle, 19, uh, middle 1880s. And as we move from the puritanical systems of, of scholasticism, the middle of the 1800s showed uh, some dramatic challenges. The seeds for this change had already begun to be planted in the popularized, rhetorically powerful, emotionally charged preaching of, say, like George Whitfield during the First Great Awakening. And the Great Awakening from that, and the First Great Awakening was right around 1730 to 1750. During the mid mid 1800s, three awakenings broke out. We saw the Second Great Awakening of 1800 to 1820. The revivals of Charles Finney in 1824 to 1837, and the Layman's Prayer revival during the the period of 1856 to 1859. Now, before anybody thinks that I'm going and that I'm bashing these Great Awakenings, I want to let you know that while the features of these movements lead us to where we are today, there was a lot of good that came from them as well as well found in their immediate effects. There was the overemphasis for media, immediate conversion instead of studying for a period of reflection and conviction. Secondly, there was an emotional, simple, popular preaching instead of the intellectual, careful, and precise reaching uh, and teaching of doctrinally correct sermons. And lastly, there was an attention to personal feelings and relationship with Christ. And folks, like I said, not all these things are bad, but there's something missing in the equation, and that is the mind. So would you deal with the, the uh, attention to personal feelings and relationship with Christ? You, you didn't have the deep grasp of the nature of Christian teaching and ideas. If you walked up to a Christian today and asked them why they believe Christianity was true or why they believe or how do they know God exists, what Jesus is God, you would probably get crickets because why? Here's why. Because there's no teaching or doctrine in the church. You have to go to the, um, you have to go to the conservative Presbyterian groups which are um, pretty solid in their doctrine, uh, but you really aren't getting even some of their younger people learning uh, about these about these basic Christian doctrinal teachings. You know, I, as I mentioned in the section on the Purit the Puritan era, uh, some questions. You know, George Marsden adds to Cotton Mather's thoughts with a thought of his own, noting that anti-intellectualism was a feature of the American revival uh, period. You know, uh, they, you know, you had all these good things during the 1800s with the Awakenings, but there wasn't uh, a, a, a pursuit toward understanding in knowledge why Christianity was true. 
Now, let me conclude here before we go to a break. And, and before we get to this next part, let me say this, that there is nothing wrong with what I've shared with you before, and there's nothing wrong with the emphasis of these movements that point to personal conversion. I'm not against that at all. I, I rejoice when somebody is saved. I, in fact, I'm praying for a coworker right now who is really on the fence because they've gone through a really difficult time in their life, but they're beginning to see the personal need for coming back. And I said coming back because this person was in the church. They had a bad ride and they had been doing some things that they were judgmental on. And I'm going to speak to some of these things as far as how we approach things towards the tail end of our show today. But pray for this person. You know, the interesting thing was, um, like I said, I'm not against anything about personal conversion. Uh, you know, what was, there was found um, an intellectual, what was found was an intellectually shallow, theologically illiterate form of Christianity that came to be a part of the populist Christian religion that emerged and is still with us today. And at the same time, there were three tragic um, periods, there were three tragic results in this period. One was what happened in what is known as the Burned Over District, and our family moved from the Burned Over District, that is the capital district of New York, where a lot of the uh, revivals took place in the 1800s, right, a lot, right up and down the Mohawk River. And uh, the great thing was there that thousands of people were converted to Christ. And like I said, I, I, I think that's a great thing. And But their effects, and they were the effects of the revivalist preaching. However, there was no real intellectual grasp of Christian teaching. As a result, two of the three major cults that we see in the United States were cultivated and born in the burned over district or in that area among the unstable, untaught converts. Those two cults were known as the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormon Church. Think about that. We'll go to a couple commercials and we'll be back in just a moment. Maybe we are all God. Maybe we are collectively God. God is experiencing himself or herself or itself through us. Nothing is absolute. I guess that's an absolute statement in itself, but... There are so many religions out there, so many people that have claimed to be the son of God before Christianity. It's a historical accident. Buddha taught the same sort of thing. So did Confucius. So did Mohammed. They all teach pretty much the same stuff. Can we really say what's right and what's wrong? There are a lot of different religions, a lot of different pathways that people this take to God. This of Jesus died for your sins. Well, I don't believe it. Maybe we are all attuned to a frequency that vibrates through the universe that is what we've determined to be God. It's just... Many of the voices that you hear in our culture range from truth being relative to all religions say the same thing or maybe that God doesn't exist. At the Real Issue Apologetics Ministry, we help churches, college groups, student groups, 
and young people answer those challenges. If you'd like more information about the Real Issue Apologetics Ministry, contact us by calling 540-419-2162 or email us at realissueapologetics at yahoo.com. That's 540-419-2162 or email at realissueapologetics at yahoo.com. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. What in the world is a two-decision Christian? Well, I think most of us uh, understand what a one-decision Christian is. We make a decision to trust Christ for our salvation. And most of us who are Christians uh, would would say we've done that. Um, The the problem, I think, is, though, that we we have a sense that it's really that, is that it? Uh, And is that really helping us to have an impact on our culture? And I think most of us would say that we feel bad that we do not share our faith as much as we ought to. In other words, we feel like we're not as good of an evangelist as we should be. But Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 that some of you are pastors, some of you are teachers, some of you are evangelists, which means some of you aren't any of those things. Some of you aren't even good at those. They're not part of the wiring that I've given you, that God has given us. Uh, But we have a duty to do those things, even though we're not great at them. And so why are we beating ourselves up over something that we may not be great at? But Peter, in 1 Peter 3, has got a little different approach. He doesn't say some of you need to be ready to give a reason for the hope you have. He says all of you need to be ready. That's not an option for us. So we we can say, well, I I can be, I mean, I'm not a great apologist, but I mean, a great uh, evangelist, but I don't need to work at that because, you know, Billy Graham, he's called to that kind of thing. Well, guess what? We're not off the hook when it comes to being a case maker. We're all called to be case makers. He doesn't say some of you are. Mm-hmm. All of us are. And that's the second decision we have to make. And I think if you don't make that decision, a decision to trust Christ and then to make a case for what you believe about Christ, I think you're living an abbreviated Christian life. Mm-hmm. And that life is, you're saved, I get all that, but are you really able to make the kind of cultural impact? Are you able to help your students, your young kids, or they go to college to be able to resist the offerings of the world, which are often going to be opposed to the Christian worldview? Are you you really able to have any kind of impact you might have had if you'd have made the second decision to do what Peter ends up telling us we all are supposed to do anyway. We really have to get to a place where we are two decision Christians. I think if we can make that decision, that second decision, we will change the world with the truth we already hold to begin with. This is Rob Lundberg from The Real Issue Podcast. We would like you to do us a favor. Go on on over to Apple Podcasts. Give us a review and give us five stars. Let people know what you think about The Real Issue Podcast. Not only that, please share with your family and friends about our shows and how it can equip them as well. I want to say thank you in advance for listening and telling others about our show. And we pray that it equips you with the answers that you need to share when asked for the reason why you believe Christianity is true. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Thank you all for listening to the Real Issue Podcast today. 
You know, I was thinking as I was listening to the commercials and getting ready for our second block that, you know, we don't really hear a whole lot about how we come to where we are in our churches today. You know, a lot of the influences that happen, and I'll probably mention this in, in, in a moment or so, a lot of this comes out of the seminaries, and it comes out of the fact of where culture has led us. And we oftentimes let the culture come into the church and do not realize how much the culture influences the church. And this is this part of our, our uh, episode today where I, I think, I hope this gives you a clearer picture of, of where we are. You know, we talked about the fact of, you know, anti-intellectualism happening and how that developed and it ended up going from the Puritan uh, intellectual part to then moving away from the mind. Now we start getting into the fact that the withdrawal of the evangelical mind and folks really... Some of you might think I'm really weird on this, but folks, this is really heartbreaking. And, and with all that we're seeing in the church today, the, you know, the fact of the emerging anti-intellectualism, that's here. Um, we see a lack of readiness to be effective for, you know, for the widespread intellectual assault. We, we, we're not ready. We weren't ready for that in the 1800s, and we're not ready for even it for even today, particularly after 9-11. And what do I mean by this? You know, as I said, this is a heartbreaking, you know, it's very heartbreaking that all of this with the emerging anti-intellectualism in the church, it, how it created a lack of readiness for a widespread intellectual assault on Christianity, which reached its full force even in the late 1880s. Now, this attack had its part in the war of ideas raging during the time in that time and it was launched in three major arenas now these arenas still have an influence to us with us today not so much you don't think of guys like Immanuel Kant and David Hume which I'll explain to you in just a moment but you think of Darwinism and you think of some of your liberal churches where the seminaries, I just mentioned you know, the seminaries, where they don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They go and they take that. And you see the, the rippling effects of what I'm going to share with you in this block in our, in our churches today. Let me say that the philosophical ideas coming from Europe, there were two key players, one being David Hume, who lived from... Uh, 1711 to 1776, and Immanuel Kant from 1724 to 1804. Now, you don't hear a lot about these philosophers altering people's understanding of religion. David Hume claimed that the traditional arguments for God's existence, that is, the world is an effect that needs a personal cause, his arguments, folks, were really quite weak. I, I've written a blog post not too long ago on David Hume uh, and uh, my friend and who's an atheist, John Loftus, uh, likes David Hume. Uh, thinks John David Hume thinks John thinks David Hume is correct. I don't. And and the whole thing is that Hume also stated that since we cannot experience God with the five senses, 
then it can't be taken as an item of knowledge. Another way, uh, Kant also asserted that human knowledge is limited to what can be experienced in the five senses. And since God cannot be experienced, we don't know whether or not God exists, plain and simple. The ideas of human Kant had a major impact on the culture as they spread across Europe and into the United States. Hume and Kant, both of their arguments, had a great influence towards shaking the arguments for the existence of God and the rationality of the Christian faith. In addition, fewer and fewer people regarded the Bible as a body of divinely inspired literature, or you know, as the Word of God, so to speak. You know, they didn't think it as, that it was truly propositional about various topics that uh, devoted an intellect that a devoted intellect could grasp and study systematically. Instead, the Bible increasingly was sought solely as a practical guide for ethical teachings and spiritual growth. Now, now this led us to um, the the German liberal school's higher criticism of the Bible. Now, depending on what type of church you go to, if you go to a liberal Baptist church, what I would like you to do is to ask your pastor what they don't believe about the Bible. You know, I did that when I was a pastor in Caroline County, just south of us here, where I ended up taking on a pastor who did not believe in in the virgin birth let alone the bodily, same body crucified, same body resurrection. I was in a minority of Bible-believing and inerrancy-embracing pastors in a Baptist association just south of us here in Virginia. And, of course, there are a lot of churches like that in Virginia here today in the Baptist circles. But what you have is the influence in these churches today is the influence from back uh, from the German higher critics. You know, when you talk about the German higher critics, you talk about the influence of uh, higher criticism coming from the schools of Tübingen University and Baden-Württemberg, called into question the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, whether or not Moses wrote the first five books of Genesis, or a good portion of them, and the search for the historical Jesus, that was also launched out of these schools of critical thought. Believers then grew suspicious of the importance of historical study and understanding the Bible and defending its truthfulness. An increased emphasis was placed on the Holy Spirit in an understanding of the Bible as opposed to the serious historical grammatical study. So let's imagine that you're sitting in a circle of people, you're having a Bible study, everybody's got their Bibles open, never mind their mobile devices or anything like that. I'm talking in the 70s. And what you had was... Thoughts like, uh, you had schools of thought like neo-orthodoxy, where the Bible became the Word of God, or some schools of thought where the Bible contained the Word of God. The Bible was not considered in the Word of God. And you might have had somebody in that circle that believes that the Bible is the Word of God. So imagine it being in a circle of people having a Bible study, and the facilitator of the Bible study says, what does that passage mean to you? Can you imagine the different types of answers that you would get from people in that group? The one that believed the Bible was the Word of God would give a literal interpretation. The one that 
believed that the Bible contained the Word of God would give a, uh, uh, an experiential existential answer about what it is and maybe an applicational type of um, answer. And then the one who was of the neo-Orthodox faith, where the Bible becomes the Word of God, might not agree that the Bible is inspired in that particular place. This is all products of the Tübingen and Württemberg Baden schools. Now, can anything good come out of Germany? Uh, not when it came to the redaction of Scripture. Not when it came to challenging the veracity of the, and the authority of the biblical text. And when you think of some of the original universities in the Northeast, I alluded to this earlier, like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, along with other Ivy League schools. These all started with as seminaries seeking to educate their students to learn about the one true God. What are they now? Well, they're nothing but dens of skepticism and liberalism. And then there's another thought that comes out of this as well. We have the ghost of Darwin. And this, this is the, the other thing here that uh, this is the other front where the evangelical mind has been withdrawn because you now have questioning the, the books of uh, the first few verses of Genesis, whether there's a gap in between Genesis 1.1 and 1.2, whether or not you have an age day or you have the gap theory or you have a literal rendering. You have all of these things. Folks, all of these came out of Germany as far as the approach of the, of the scriptures. We need to get back to the Bible and what the Bible says. We need to trust it. But see, when you deal with the fact of evolution, they don't tell you that there's six kinds of evolution. Uh, evolution challenged the early chapters of Genesis, creating new theories in the first several verses of Genesis, and some of the very some also on the very existence of God and other uh, pers uh, perspectives. Instead of responding to these attacks with a rigorous intellectual counterpunch, many believers grew suspicious of the intellectual issues altogether. Now, I will grant you that as Christians, we must rely on the Holy Spirit in our intellectual pursuits. But this does not mean that we should expend no mental sweat for our defending the faith. Folks, that is unbiblical. So, how does anti-intellectualism and the withdrawal show a, a connection today? Well... So I know that I made a blunt statement earlier that the problem with America is not America. The problem with America is the church. I'm still holding to that. We have looked at the history of how things started off well from the Puritans and the Pilgrims, but then the downward slide began in the 17 and 1800s. Does the history of decisions affect the future picture of the church? Folks, I believe we are seeing the evidence that it has, and it still does. With there always being opportunities to turn things around. Yes, folks, there's hope. We need to get apologetics back into our churches. But what do things look like today? Please note, I am an evangelist and an apologist who traces trends and historical markers. I've given you some historical markers in this show today. None of us are perfect in our analysis, but what I see today has a lot to do with the past. First off, let me say that the church is not a building 
but it is comprised of blood-bought believers, people who have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm very careful with what I'm saying. I'm not saying the American church as much as I'm saying American Christianity. However, the problems that we have today are products of a lack of rigorous defense, of, of the rigorous defense of the Christian faith to exercise the philosophical, ideological ghosts of the past. And when I say we, I am referring to pastors, I am referring to seminaries, and I'm referring to believers, we have left our post. Seminaries are dropping philosophy programs like Liberty this past week. Seminaries need to see that the Bible is an apologetic and that they need to build up that understanding with the creating with creating minors and major concentrations in their religious departments. I graduated from a seminary that was very evangelistic, but it was very weak in apologetics, only offering one only offering one course in apologetics. That seminary and others like it need to think of real hard about how we are going to approach our postmodern world. I don't know how to say that any kinder. We need to regain lost ground. Why? Here's a composite of what I'm seeing. First off, I think it is clear that American Christianity has become rather shallow. What we are seeing now today is a lot of emotional and experiential interpretations of Christianity. It is clear that the church has become master of engineering feelings without much thought in our church services. Secondly, I'm hearing pastors in pulpits today repeating things from and parroting their favorite speakers and preachers without immersing themselves in, in learning more about them and more about their whole mindset as far as why the mind is important. And when I ask them about interpreting, implementing a plan to equip their people in multi-week apologetic study, they decline. In essence, the church's pastors and leaders are not very really encouraging their people to think through their faith. With the culture ratcheting things up even more with this pandemic, we need to challenge ourselves to see if we really believe what we think we believe is true. This ministry, our ministry, the Real Issue Apologetics Ministry, can come alongside your church. We can come alongside your group and help you work out a plan to do just that. In actuality, the church is, is the new mission field. Music that has that is feelings-based and lacking theological foundations need to be exercised by the churches for contemporary hymns and music loaded with biblical truth. Music leaders who, who think music is the only form of worship need to step away from there and find another platform. That sounds rather rough, I know, but that's how I feel. This is creating an engine for a lack of thought in our churches today. And when it comes to reaching the lost, the problem is that we have not been encouraging to ask questions of those visiting our churches. We are seeing a growing interest in spiritual things today with this pandemic that's going on because of uncertainties in our culture. There are people out there who have been hurt by the church, and, and Christians for that matter, but are finding that they are they are finding out that they don't have good reasons, good answers to their questions. The problem with churches today is that they are seeker-friendly and message-unfriendly. The part of the reason is that people are not trained to listen to how to engage the lost. We are not listening to people. We are just coming up with pat answers for answering people's questions and giving them chapter and verse and thinking that we're going to go and put a notch on our stick for going and leading somebody to Christ when we really need to show that we care and want to know more about them. 
Again, churches need to stop being seeker-friendly and, met- and, and, and message-unfriendly and get equipped to engage the hurting, not just with the food or a cup of cold water, but with that food and cup of cold water with words and hearts in order to find ways to reach those who are looking for us, to will tell them the truth with graciousness, gentleness, and respect. We need to regain the depth that we have lost to equip the saints. The way that Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.12, that he gave some as apostles, as teachers, pastors, and overseers to equip the church to do the work of the ministry. And I believe that this is one way we can stem the tide until the Lord returns. You've been listening to The Real Issue Podcast, the podcast arm of Rob Lundberg Apologetics and The Real Issue Apologetics Ministry. Thank you for listening today. And uh, this has been uh, a fun podcast. It's been a sobering podcast episode today. But I think the truth needs to come out. We are in a lot of trouble. And this is why I think what I would like you to do is i like you to listen to this podcast again. Think about what I'm sharing and think about solutions and how you can encourage your church to get ratcheted up to learn how to engage people in a conversational style of evangelism. Where I'm working right now, I am having conversations with people, and I have been told that they have appreciated me not shoving a Bible down their throat, but they are considering the fact that there's nothing that I have said that has not been biblical. I've been sharing biblical truth without sharing chapter and verse, and they have showed, they have expressed verbally the appreciation that I listen to them and that I care for them. And I want to teach you how to do the same thing. So thank you for listening to the Real Issue Podcast. And uh, we'll, we will be back with you next week. So as you go out this week, as the, your states are opening up, uh, Lord willing, uh, if they are opening up, then uh, praise the Lord. <laughs> Maybe we're coming to the end of this. I don't know. But nevertheless, as you go out and as you have opportunity to speak to somebody, as you do, go out, be his ambassador. Listen to people. Love them. See them as people who are created in the image and likeness of God. And with the mercy of Jesus Christ, because you have received mercy, give them mercy. But as you do, make sure you give them heaven. And we'll be back with you next week. Lord bless.